Hello everyone, uh, I'm Mac, I'm a grad student here at RUF, I'm going to be reading from God's Word tonight. I'll be reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, and verses 6 through 11. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk, it's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food? That does you no good. Listen to me, and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us before we get into Isaiah 55. Father, uh, In this passage, you say, listen to me, listen to me, come to me, have your ears wide open, listen. So help us to do that. By the power of your spirit, help us to listen to you now. But if we're going to listen, you have to speak. You say you will. So we we call you on that promise now. And we together just acknowledge that Help us open our ears, but then speak into our ears. Get into our hearts. Talk to us, Father. Look us in the eye. Make us know when we're leaving tonight. We heard from you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Anna and I, uh, about a year ago, were watching a series on Netflix. You might have seen it or heard about it too, especially you pre-med folks. It's called Lenox Hill. And the Lenox Hill show is about a famous hospital in New York City, but particularly the show focuses on four neurosurgeons and uh, who, who are on a team, they practice together at this hospital. And these four neurosurgeons are like four of the best in the world, four of the best brain surgeons in the world. So they're the, they're the people you go see when your neurologist said the tumor is inoperable, you should look into hospice options. Because they're the best brain surgeons in the world, they attract the worst cancers in the world, the worst patients in the world. Because they're the most capable in the world, the most capable doctors, they attract the most impossible patients. Make sense? The reason why they attract the worst, the the most impossible situations, the most inoperable tumors is because these patients are going to them, they have no options left. 
these guys are their last hope in the world for life. I want you to hold on to that. The very best attracts the very worst. I've been thinking about that the past few weeks in this series as we've been looking through Isaiah. Particularly, I've been thinking about this. Jesus, the very best, always attracted the very, very worst in his time here on earth, in his life, in his ministry. There was a certain group of people that he became so associated with that their reputation became his reputation. It rubbed off on him. He was guilty by association. Jesus himself says in Matthew um, 11, he's talking to a crowd and he says, I've heard the gossip. I've heard what y'all think about me. And he says, y'all say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let's unpack those words real quick. A glutton, which is a chronic overeater who is looking for refuge from the storms and stress of life always in the next meal. Food is God. He says, people called him and thought of him as a drunkard, a substance abuser who worshiped the comfort of a buzz to kind of heal the relational insecurity that you know you carry around with you. But it fades a little bit to the background for a few hours when you drink enough. Glutton, a drunkard. A tax collector, he was known as, a, he was known as kind of running in circles with these greedy, grifting tax collectors. Shopaholics, we might call them today, might sound cute, but why else would you skim money off every transaction if you hadn't fallen in love with spending money and buying your way into a better life. Addicted to food, food is God. Addicted to um, euphoria, to camaraderie, to drunkenness, alcohol is God. Addicted to money and its spending power, more stuff is God. And then this catch-all term, gluttons, drunkards, tax collectors, and sinners, which was a catch-all term for People whose idolatry had run so rampant and so enslaved them that they didn't have the luxury anymore of doing that in private. They couldn't hide it the way we might be able to hide or put a shiny coat on. It was out there for everybody else to see. It couldn't be kept private. And included in this category were people like sex addicts, prostitutes, the people who cruised the streets looking for them for what they knew and the prostitute knew was fake intimacy, fake acceptance, but it would at least get you through another day. God asks in verse one of our passage tonight, is anyone thirsty? Those are the thirsty. They're the ones who worship gods of diminishing returns. And they're beginning to realize it because they only ever get thirstier and thirstier. And maybe that's why they started hanging out with Jesus and listening to him. Maybe they thought he had something to say. Now add to the list, um, already we've put ourselves on the map with what we've talked about, but add to the list the friend who never gets picked first, can't get over it because his heart is so stuck on being wanted, being included. And there have been times that you've been included, you've gotten the invite, you got the text, you were asked to live in a house next year to sign a lease, but that high lasted for about a week. 
And now you're hungry again, you're thirsty again, you need it from other people. You need another invite. You need someone else to see you. And you just get thirstier. Add to the list the roommate who nine out of 10 times chooses emotional comfort out of vulnerability in conversation. Um, You want comfort, but the lack of vulnerability and honesty in the friend group has now led to kind of confrontation and snippiness with each other. And comfort's not what you've gotten. Conflict's what you've gotten. And it's just made you thirstier and thirstier for comfort. The person who craves involvement on campus, at your church, in RUF, wherever, because needing to rush off to the next meeting, needing to be needed, having places to be and things to do is like a narcotic. A quick hit that just says to you, says to your soul, I matter. I feel that. But you're also overwhelmed all the time. And you wonder if you've really made any difference in the eight roles that you occupy. All these people, the list that Jesus gives, the list that we populated, those are the thirsty. And they're not just the thirsty ones. And here's the beautiful thing. Those people, the drunkards, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all of these substance abusers, all of these addicts, all of these idolaters, they're the original groupies of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh on earth. They're that initial core of followers. I asked you to hold on to that line. The very best attract the very worst. Why? The very worst have nowhere else to go. They have no other hope. There was no other surgeon who would even take their case, who would even consult with them. You're a lost cause. So you have to find the best. And that's why those kind of people, which does include you, whether you saw yourself mapped onto that or not, that's why those kind of people flocked to Jesus and stuck with him so tightly So on the clock, off the clock, wherever he went, there they were. Stuck together so tightly that their reputations began to merge. And Jesus is now associated with them. So here's what I want you to hear before we get any further in this passage. Jesus Christ, Paul says Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Which also means Jesus Christ came into the world to save idolaters. As we've been going through the past few weeks, um, I told you on week one, for some of you, light bulbs will begin to go off. For some of you, it will be weeks before those light bulbs go off because idolatry operates in smoke and shadows and in delusions and lies and deceptions. It's really hard to pin down what's going on in my heart, what's driving my why, my motivation. What's producing these crazy emotions I feel, these outlier emotions? What's making me so mad? That can be really hard to trace back, but some of you are tracking with that. Some of you might already be wondering, is this this my fate? Am I stuck in this forever? Am I the worst in my house, in my prayer group, in my community group, in my family? And hear Paul say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save idol worshipers, even if you consider yourself to be the worst. If you're the worst, There's a best, so keep listening. Now, 
One of the things that Jesus will tell us, one of the things God will show us in this passage, if we do keep listening, is that Jesus, we obviously know he did not come to enable our addictions. That part's obvious. But also, did you know that Jesus did not come merely to eliminate your addictions and your patterns of idolatry? That's not his ultimate goal in your life. It's clear that he didn't come to enable our addictions and idolatry. He's not gonna answer every little prayer that we might pray because sometimes we're just asking for him to become kind of a financer, a producer of our self-destruction. He's like, I'm not gonna have anything to do with that. But also, he didn't just come to eliminate our addictions and to set right our worship. That's, that's, That's not where it stops. It gets so much better than that. Here's the better part. Jesus came to satisfy and to quench the divine thirst that's underneath all of these other cravings and desires and wants and felt needs. Jesus came to satisfy that divine thirst. Now, divine thirst, what's that mean? What am I talking about? You might have heard of a guy named St. Augustine, St. Augustine, however you pronounce it. He was a bishop in North Africa in the 300s. He's a a famous uh, father from the early church. He's known as the first Christian to to journal, as we would call it. The first introspective Christian. That's what he's known as. And the reason why is because he wrote a book, and it was a journal. It was a diary called The Confessions, St. Augustine's Confessions. Highly would recommend it to you. Um, Early on, in one of the first uh, pages of his journal, he he writes this, and he's talking about this divine thirst, and he says, Lord, you've made me for yourself, and my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Or we could say, he could have written, Lord, my heart is thirsty until it's quenched in you. My heart is hungry until it's satisfied in you. My heart is wandering until it finds its home in you. Nothing else will do. I've been there, I've tried that. If you read his confessions, you'll know he'd been there and tried that. He's kind of a King Solomon kind of figured. Been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt for everything under the sun. So this is a man well acquainted with the ways of the world, well acquainted with his own idols, who said, I've got a restless heart and I've never seen that thing rest in peace and have a smile on its face until my heart was in you. So that's the divine thirst that I'm talking about. This restlessness, this craving, this hunger, this thirst that the Bible talks a lot about that's deep inside of us. Now, you've been around long enough, um, maybe just as a person, maybe in this series the past few weeks, where you know um, sin got in and corrupted and infected that hunger, that thirst, that craving, that restlessness, and it corrupted it. And so a lot of other people have written about this divine thirst, but from that angle, G.K. Chesterton, another author, he said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God on the other side. A writer said, every, lo- every time you log onto a porn site, what you're really looking for is Jesus. Divine thirst. There's an author who titled his book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. You remember Nick Sheff? I began to tell he and his dad's story. His dad is David. He wrote the book, Beautiful Boy, the Steve Carell uh, Timothy Chalamet movie a few years ago, a father's journey through his son's addiction. Nick was the son, Nick was the addict, and Nick talks about the divine thirst too. 
Not in so many words, but he says, when I discovered drugs, my world went from black and white to technicolor. I can never give that up. One day I tried meth, that felt good, and I thought, that this is what's been missing. I feel complete. He said, I've been chasing that high ever since. You get it, right? He's looking for God in the high. We're looking for God on the other side of the door in those casual hookups. We're looking for God in what we Google and what we're, how we're scheduling our time. We find these things, they complete us. It makes our hearts not restless anymore. I told you too, every week I wanna give you more and more tools to identify, to, put, to understand what's going on inside of you so that we can begin to pray and think and respond with more specificity. The false gods that have a hold on your heart are the things to which you would say, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. I'm restless when I don't have you. What is it? What are those things? What's the pantheon? God's question in this passage, and it's God's, not Isaiah's, is getting to the point of that very issue. And if he's saying, if we're so quenched by these gods who cannot save, why are we still so thirsty? Why are we still so thirsty? And that's what God wants to know. He says, is anyone thirsty? We think that's a rhetorical, obvious question. Anyone restless? Anyone hungering for something bigger than you? Something that doesn't fade? And we kind of know the answer to that, yeah, that's me too. Um, but again, as we've been pointing out every week, um, we, we tend to go back to these gods, these idols, these addictive patterns, these habits. We go back to them to satisfy the bad feelings of their failure, of them falling short. We double down. Nick said it, no matter how much meth or whatever else I could find to shoot up into my body, it was never enough. The God of diminishing returns. The more lifeblood we shed for it, the more of your life and your time you give to it, the less of it you get, the more of it you need. God's question in verse two hits deeper. He says, why then, if we're still thirsty, why then do we keep spending our money on food that does not give us strength? Why do we keep paying for food that doesn't satisfy us? Why keep soul-sustaining water from wells? Why keep drawing soul-sustaining waters from wells that we know good and well just come up dry? What's driving us to do that? You might be familiar with this verse. It's a good verse to be familiar with. It's another prophet. It's Jeremiah in chapter two of that book, and Jeremiah's diagnosing. He's answering the why. What's going on in us that makes us keep going back to dry wells throwing down buckets, exerting a tremendous amount of effort to to bring up soul-sustaining water to keep us going. God is speaking to his people and he says, there's two things, there's two things that my people have done, two evils that they've committed. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and second, they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can't hold water at all. So in other words, there's two things that my people have done. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living waters, and they've replaced me with something pitifully inferior to to a fountain of living water. Like they've replaced me with a colander, 
know what a colander is? You like wash the vegetables, the strawberries, and all the water goes right through it. Try taking water from one side of the room to another in a colander. That's a life of idolatry. Every time we get over here, we're empty again. Got to go back and do it again. Got to go downtown again. Got to get another. Got to get another invite again. Got to get another position again. Got to get another A again. And it's wearying, and it's tiring, and it's emptying. And God says, behind that is an abandonment and a replacement of a fountain of living water. Now, here's the psychology behind it. And this, maybe this is the important part of like, but why do I keep doing this? Because we think that these things that we go to, whatever it is for you and whatever degree of clarity you're getting over the past month, we keep going back to these things because we think they're living water, they're replenishing our souls. We don't necessarily see the holes in the bottom of it and the water all over the ground. And here's the point. The reason we keep going back is our false gods, our idols are preaching a gospel to you, to me too. They're literally preaching good news, a gospel. News of deliverance, news of resurrection and life, news of living water, news of the bread of life. And that story, that promise, that gospel is on your wavelength, whatever it is for you. It's like the dog whistle. You can hear it. Other people, it might not affect them. They might not be into the same things you are, but you hear it. I hear it. It lands with me. It hits differently with me. And I respond to that good news. It has a hold on my emotions. My hopes begin to rise. Again, I'm over here and I'm like, but maybe one more time. Or maybe a little harder, a little stronger, a little more intense. And the emptiness won't come next time. Our idols are preaching gospel to us and we're obeying that gospel. We're responding to that evangelism. And that response to that evangelism uh, is why we behave the way we do, want what we want, are stuck in the places that we're stuck. Have you noticed we're four weeks in a row now where the passage, which are almost three out of the four were from Isaiah, all of them from the Old Testament. Have you noticed every single passage, there's a section in it where God is pleading with his people to pay attention and to listen to him. He does it here. Listen and you'll find life. Listen to me and you'll eat what is good. Come to me with your ears wide open. Every single week he's saying the same thing. Listen, listen, open your ears, pay attention. Remember, keep this on your mind, don't forget. All verbatim quotes from the past few weeks passages. Does it make sense why he's saying that? Who do you have to say, who do you have to go that overboard with saying like, listen to me, pay attention, come on. You student teachers have had to say that probably today with the little kids. When you're in a group of people who are, are so distracted, so tuned into another message, they're the ones you have to more aggressively, energetically say, pay attention to me, listen, remember this, don't forget this. Keep this in mind. That's why God pleads with us so much to pay attention is we're already listening to these other gospels. It's why his can seem so, I've heard this story before. Not that impressive. An important tool, an important part of uprooting these patterns of idolatry, of beginning to, to identify them and lift them out of our hearts and to, to neutralize them, an important part of that is to begin to hear the gospel message that they preach to you. What's the good news? What's the promised payoff? For Nick, chef, 
For him, it was drugs. And, and maybe that, that gospel promise, though he wasn't a Christian, was, I'm the light of the world. Does your life feel black and white, boring, dull, confusing, just same old drab every day, every day? I can turn that to technicolor. I am the light of the world. I am the life. Maybe that's why downtown has such a pull on your heart, if it does. Same seductive gospel. I'll turn your black and white world into technicolor. For me, um, why do I keep kind of getting back into patterns of just like frantic productivity? Got to get it done. Got to master all the details. Maybe to hear life itself just say to me, maybe to hear my to-do list say, well done, good and faithful servant. Take your rest. Maybe for you it's approval. And that's the gospel that you're responding to that's animating your heart, that's getting you out of bed in the morning. Is a friend, is a friend group, is an internship, well done. Good and faithful servant, we see you, you matter, you're one of us. Um, For me, in the past too, I think for some of you, um, if you find yourself, just the God that you cannot imagine living without is a spiritual high, it's the mountaintop. You have conflated um, feeling near to God with God being near to you. Do you see the difference there? Feeling near to God with God being near to you. God is always near to you, he says in this passage, I'm near. God is always near to you. Um, if, if you are a Christian, you are in him. You are one with him. How could he be far? But I, uh, especially back in my early 20s, fell in love with a God who looked just like this God, but was just enough different that he destroyed me. And it was the God of feeling connected to God, feeling near to God, which is a good thing, right? Good thing made a God thing, and I worship that. And that gospel said to me, Ben, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if you have me, you can fear no evil. You'll be fine. If in the valley of the shadow of death, in whatever circumstances you're going through, you feel, you see God's smile. You don't have to live by faith. You feel it in your bones. You know what God did to break me of that and to help me see that this is different than him? He took this away for about two years. And he showed me at the end of that two years that he was still here. This came and went depending on the mood and what I ate for lunch, how tired I was, how good or bad the sermon was. He never left. But these are the gospels that we are motivated by, animated by, that we live for. Um, Pay attention to that message. What is it saying to you? What's the promise? It'll be helpful for you to see that and to stack it up against the actual gospel and the real, true, and living God who actually does save and can help. So all of our idols have stolen gospel promises out of the mouth of God, except they don't have the power of God or the person of God or the heart of God. And so it's a con. But what do they whisper to you? Again, until we begin to get some clarity on that and you begin to to hear that and know what that is, the addictive cycle that's described in verse two just keeps happening. Keep spending, doesn't satisfy. Spend more, doesn't satisfy. So, that's a good thing for us to pay attention to. Back to Augustine. You know that 
quote that I read earlier, you might have heard that before. I've heard that quoted a lot. I've almost never heard the sentence that comes after it quoted. And it's a shame. The sentence that comes after that, I mean, the original quote to remind you, he said, he wrote in his journal, Lord, you have made me for yourself and my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And then he says, but oh, how should I find rest in you? Who will send you into my heart to inebriate it that I might forget my troubles and embrace you, my only good? Does that resonate with you? He knows the theological, the biblical truth that my heart was made to to come alive in my God and in my maker, my redeemer, my savior. But he can't even get another sentence beyond that before he starts realizing the poverty of his heart the hunger, the thirst. And he, he starts praying through his journal. He starts praying to God and he's saying, but, but how shall I find rest in you? Who is gonna send you into my heart to inebriate, to intoxicate it with your love? Then I might embrace you, my only good. In other words, I need help wanting you. I want to want you. He goes on. This is the beautiful part. This is a template for your prayer. He says, oh Lord my God, tell me what you are to me. Augustine's getting serious. He's getting, um, he's getting in God's face and he's saying, tell me what you are to me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Say it so I can hear it. My heart is listening, Lord. Open the ears of my heart. Say to my soul. God says here, open your ears wide. Augustine is praying, then open my ears wide. Do not hide your face from me, for not to see your face would be death to me. What a beautiful, honest prayer of a man who no longer just wants circumstances to go well or his emotions to kind of reach equilibrium or just is praying for clarity and gets clarity or gets through the hard confrontation. Here's a man who's praying for God. Here's a man that God has brought to the point where what Augustine most wants is more of God. And that is sacred ground. Here is a man who is beginning to to walk away a free man from his idols. Do you see that? This is not a man who is asking God to finance his self-destruction, to finance his false worship. Now he's asking for God. He's coming full circle. I have this restless heart. And it's restless until it's hidden in you. And now he's praying for that. And that's the pivot that happens in a heart that is moving close to God. And this Augustine and you and I are seeing in this God a beautiful and a real God who unlike our idols has ears and has eyes and has feet and has hands and answers prayers and responds to us, and loves to feed the hungry, because he says it here, loves to quench the thirst of the thirsty, because he says it here. Augustine has finally found the God who says in the face of his thirst, come and drink freely. Anyone thirsty? Come and drink freely. Come and find living water. Someone else has paid the bill, all expenses paid, just come, just come. 
Don't worry about how I'm gonna work it out. Don't worry about where it's gonna come from. Come. This invitation to come is near and dear to God's heart. If you have a Bible, turn to the very last page of the Bible. Turn to the very last paragraph of the entire Bible and hear what God is still saying. Hear what is stuck on repeat in his heart. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. If anyone is thirsty, come and drink without price. He says it here in Isaiah. He says it in the very last utterances of the Bible, and he says it repeatedly throughout. Come and drink. Jesus says it to the woman at the well. We'll see next week. You're looking for water? You found him. And he's different than all the other men you've been with. You will know that you are close to God and that God is close to you and that you're starting to experience liberation from your idols when you start praying and wanting God. John Tyson said, God tends to show up where he's wanted. Some of us might think, well, that's just the problem. I've tried calling out, I've tried seeking him, I've tried all this stuff in verse six and seven here. I've tried calling out, I've tried turning, I've tried turning to the Lord, and it hasn't worked. G.K. Chesterton said, um, Christianity hasn't been um, tried and found lacking. It's been left, it's been found difficult and left untried. Flip the quote, and it fits some of us in the room. Some of us haven't tried calling out, seeking God, turning from our sins, and found him lacking. We found it uncomfortable because it conflicted with our idol of comfort, and we left it untried. We found it difficult and it conflicted with our God of ease and we left him unsought, truly, genuinely unsought. So if that describes you, if it describes where you've been, what do you do? What do you do? First of all, we own that if that's us that some of us don't experience any power in our relationship with God because we've put no effort into seeking God, calling out to God, listening to God. For some of y'all, that might sound like works righteousness, and you're like, well, I, I, I thought that the gospel was God does everything. No, God is always called for a response. He's always called us to listen, to pay attention, to come to him, to seek him. And he says, you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. He says, repent that days of refreshing might come upon you. So what if you have no desire, no lack, uh, no want at all? You do what Augustine did. You pray for the want. You add that to the bill of reasons you need a rich God who calls the poor to come to him without money, the hungry, the thirsty to come. You add it to the list of reasons you need Jesus, this Jesus. But you don't stay away and just say, well, I don't feel anything, so I'm not gonna do it. You don't make a minimal attempt at crying out to him, at seeking him, at turning, and say, well, I tried that, it didn't work. What's happening there is we're bending the knee to other gods, and we're lefting the true and living one unsought. So there's action verbs in verse six and seven. Seek the Lord, call out on him now, let the wicked change their ways, and banish every thought of doing wrong. Let us turn to the Lord. Let us turn to our God. 
But if that makes sense to you, if you're an action-oriented person, you gotta listen to the second half of every single one of those sentences, all embedded in the overpowering mercies and grace of God. Seek the Lord because you can still find him. That's good news. He's not a tease. He's not playing hide and seek with you. He wants to be found and he will show himself to you. So seek him. Call on him now. Why? Second half of the sentence. Because he's near. He's not far away. He's near. Right now he's near. I don't feel he's near. So what? He says he's near. Your emotions might not be perceiving his nearness. He's near. He says, let the wicked change their ways. Let us repent. Let us banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let us turn to the Lord. Why? So that he might have mercy on you. Give you what you don't deserve. Again and again and again and again. Let us, yes, let us turn to God. Why? For he will forgive generously. God is throwing gas on whatever ember is in your heart of motivation that might feel just like a, a smoldering little wick and he is just throwing gas upon gas upon gas and the motivation is all who he is I am near I am generous I am merciful I seek the lost you can find me that's the motivation friends that's why we listen because that kind of God is talking to you who he made who he made You're intimate to him. You're unique to him. He knows you. He's talking to you. I want to end here. Um, I want to just keep pushing on this point because some of us uh, just feel the exasperation of feeling like we've tried this. I've tried all this. Last week, we said the way that idolatry vanishes, the way that it fades out is kind of like the way that the stars and the noonday sun vanish and fade out because the sun is nearer and brighter than all of them. Noon today, blue sky, there's stars as far as the eye can see and you couldn't see one of them because there is an object closer to you and more powerful than all of those and they fade out into nothing. It's the same with our loves and it's the same with Jesus. But how exactly can God use his word, which he talks about in verse 10 and 11, how can he use his word to make Jesus beautiful to you again, to make the sun rise so that all of these little stories and and examples of idolatry, whatever it is for you, begins to fade away. How can he do that? I want to finish by reading you just a little snippet of 2 Peter um, chapter 1. In what Peter writes there, the context is Peter is saying, I myself and James and John, I was on a mountain in Israel and I saw Jesus in his glory. He's talking about the transfiguration. I saw Jesus radiating, majestic, in a way that no one else had seen him. And, and Peter says, uh, that mountain on which God audibly said to Jesus in their presence, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Peter says, I heard it, I saw it. And then he says this, he's talking about the Bible and he says, we, we have that experience more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. As do a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is saying the same thing. God's word, which in Isaiah 
says is like the snow and the rain. It never returns to him void. It is powerful. It does everything he wishes. What does he wish? Your rekindled worship, your affections, your loves, your loyalty, your liberation, your freedom, you getting the world back. That's what it accomplishes. How can it happen? This is not just another book. You are not dealing with just another book here. This is the word of God. What you're hearing tonight is the word of God preached with someone who speaks your language to you. And God says, this is able to make Jesus beautiful to you again. This is able to make the sun rise to the noonday sun. This is able to make the idols vanish into the background where you don't Worship downtown, it's not your master. You go there to get a drink with a friend and talk about life. It's a servant now. Food's not a master, it's a servant now. Deep friendships aren't a master, they're a servant. Listen. God is talking and he's wooing you back. Let's pray. We will sure need your spirit, Heavenly Father, for that to happen. We don't wanna end with just hearing Peter say, hey, You'd, be, you'd do well to pay attention. You'd do well to listen to these words which can make the sun rise, the morning star rise in your hearts. We want to see Jesus as he is. So speak to us and say to us, Jesus, that you are our salvation. Say to us that you are real. Say to us that you are better. And say it in a way that we can understand. We pray it in your name and for your sake. Amen.